0: Well, this morning, December the 9th, which is Lesson 51, and this is going to be Part 3 of our study on the Lord's Prayer, or the Model Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, as we've learned to refer to it. We didn't quite get through last week, so we're into a Part 3. We'll look at Chapter 6, beginning in Verse 13, as we continue on this morning, and I'll get, get right to it. From chapter 6, verse 13, we read as Christ again is speaking and teaching here, Sermon on the Mount. He says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm tempted here to say, can I get an amen? <laughs> normally wouldn't do that. But this is what we're all certainly aware of in our life, when it comes right down to what the Lord is doing and getting our attention and so forth as we approach Him in prayer, our mind should go to, to some degree, the battle that's raging. Maybe we have a little lull, but raging in our heart and in our soul. I think it's even more concerning when we're unaware of that battle because it's always there. Peter tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion walking about to and fro seeking whom he may devour. So we know that. And also with that is the fact we don't like dwelling on that all the time. Okay, We know it's a reality in our life. We know that we go to the Scriptures for strength. We have the fellowship that we draw from one another as Christ sends into our life people who can speak to our issues and pray for us and come in alongside us as the Word says and help bear our burdens, if you will, our spiritual burdens as they encourage us in Scripture and in prayer. So we appreciate that. And what a privilege it is to in turn do that for others. This is our survival. This is how we move forward. This is how we stay strong in the Word of God. And I give you that up front. But let's look specifically at what he's talking about here. Now, of course, the end of that verse says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to put that aside just for a minute. We'll come back to that after we look at the first part of this verse where he begins by saying, Do not lead us into temptation. This word here, temptation, in the original language is a neutral word. Uh, just simply, it's neither good nor evil in the original language it can by its design and when you look at its root and so forth it can mean either one and I would dare say to you that's exactly why that word is there that's why it's there it's the perfect word of course for this particular portion in scripture and what Christ is conveying obviously it couldn't be anything else but we see that when we begin looking at the word as it's broken down in the English, you know, we understand that word temptation to be an inducement to evil. That's the way we interpret it. We don't ever think about it maybe just being a trial. We don't think about that. When we say temptation, right? An inducement to evil. But it can mean either testing. Or it can mean testing or proving or the other. And that's the way it's in- interpreted. So, how do you know which it is? Well... Basically, what you'll see, and what I've discovered virtually every commentator agrees on, when these things come into our life, we determine, or it's determined as to whether or not it is a temptation or a trial based upon how we respond to it, quite simply. And it's one of those situations where you really don't know Do you look back and you see this thing in your life, this set of circumstances, this relationship Or whatever this, whatever it is, a difficulty of some sort, how do we respond to that? If we respond in faith, and we weather the storm, and we come through on the other side, we've been what? Tested. Okay? We had a, a trial. If we yield to it, if we allow it to overcome us, then we realize that it has indeed been a temptation and an inducement to evil. James chapter 1, verse 13 comments there, and he says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone, right? That's what the Word says. So it begs the question, why would we pray and ask the Lord not to do something that He's already said He'll never do? That's what Scripture says, right? That He's not going to do that. What's the answer to that? Well, I found some information here that might help us understand that. We go back and, and look at something that, Chris, I pronounce it Chrysostom, okay, Chrysostom is the way it's pronounced, but I like Chrysostom better, it's easier for me to say. You know that means golden mouth, did anybody know that? His name is John Golden Mouth, okay, John Chrysostom, 4th century, listen. In the early church, he said the solution to this issue is that Jesus is here, in this particular passage, is not speaking of logic or theology. That's not what he's talking about. But rather a heart desire, an inclination that causes a believer to want to avoid the danger and trouble that sin creates. I read that and I said, I think that's fairly accurate. I think that's accurate in my life. Could you agree with that? We see a situation developing before us in our life. And I don't know that it's wrong. I'd like to to stay away from that. I don't even want to go there. I don't want to deal with that. That's that's normal. Uh, It'd be okay to pray about that, but we're going to look at a paradox in that regard here in just a moment. So that's what he says about that in looking particularly at that first part of verse 13 here in chapter 6 where he says, don't lead us into temptation. It's an outcry from the heart about what we would desire. And then he follows up there with the, the rest of the verse where he says, Deliver us from evil. Deliver us. And It means to rush or to draw or to run in, to rescue. Uh, to literally to take us out of a situation. And Chrysostom adds further, he says, It is the expression of the redeemed soul that so despises and fears sin that it wants to escape all prospects of falling into it. Choosing to avoid rather than having to defeat temptation. And of course, we know we can only defeat temptation by relying upon the Word of God and prayer. So I find that interesting. Interesting. Because we pray, Lord, we don't want to go there. We don't want to have to deal with that. And yet, the Scriptures teach us that that is the way in which God, through His Word, through our experiences, continues to chisel away at our lives, to mold us, to continue that ongoing sanctification process in our life. Listen, rest assured... You cannot get there. You cannot improve. You cannot become more like Christ apart from being put to the test. This don't work that way. And we get all these head shaking cuz there's enough Christian experience in here for people to know that's true. It's only when I've embraced the difficulty and I've gotten through, I've gotten on the other side of it, relying upon the presence of God in my life, the word of God being benefited by prayer from other Christians and so forth. That's how our faith grows. That's what tells us that this this is real. Our experiences in faith tell us that. Without it, the Bible says, it is impossible to please God. We must have that. And we must be willing to go there. So you see the paradox. And our heart's desire... Is that we could avoid these things, and I trust when we pray for avoidance, it's not just so, uh, you know, we can, you know, be sit and be spiritually fat and happy. It's because we can get on with the business of the Lord, if you will, being obedient to Him and not be encumbered. Paul certainly prayed that way, did he not? He prayed for a thing to be taken away from him three times and God wouldn't take it away. He says, this is what you need. And Paul understood that. I think that's part of the pie as well, understanding why things are happening the way they are. In that case, Paul was able to say there in 2 Corinthians, he said, I know, I know why this has happened, lest I be exalted above measure. Do we have that kind of relationship? Are we that in tune with the, the deepest, literally the deepest reservoirs of our soul? Those things that still need attention in our life. And is it, Are we happy about bringing those before God and, and literally saying, Lord, do as You will. Because I know that You know just how much to turn up the heat. <laughs> And to turn it down, you've promised you won't leave me. You won't forsake me. Was that a hand, Chris? where it says he learned obedience to the things which he suffered. I wrote that down. I wrote that down in the sermon last week, but I don't remember what it was either. But we know that's certainly in the Scripture, that in his, in his humanity, he learned obedience to the things which he suffered. We, exactly. yeah there's no way and i appreciate that there's no way to avoid this and there's peace in understanding that when we know that what we've entered into is by God's design, and certainly you can go back and think of those situations that have found you. It's not because of your sin or whatever. Sometimes, it, you know, I feel like I maybe missed the mark on something, or I caused something, or I maybe, you know, in some way, I'm responsible for the set of circumstances. And God will deal with that, you know. Even if it, if it's something unintentional that happened, I've asked myself, why did this happen? Why? Why does, What possible good is this situation right now? And God wants us to do that and learn that, look, He's in control of that. And if I have to wait a while, weeks, months, or a year to find out what that was, then so be it. But God is faithful in that. It's so important to know that we are in His hands in that regard. We can find rest in that. Because He says they will come. The difficulties will come. The trials will come. You cannot avoid them as a believer. So they come to grow us spiritually. They come to grow us morally. We grow. They come to grow us emotionally. Our trials. Being able to respond rightly and appropriately to the circumstances of our life. We have to do that. Back to James in chapter 1. Verse 2, he says, My brethren there, and you know the verse, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various He's talking about a a conscious commitment here, would be the words. Count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, and in this case it is that word spiritually mature or complete, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if we can see what's at the end, if we can see the goal line, if you will, it helps. It helps. It helps a lot. and We have to exert faith in that regard that God is in control and we see His hand. We're free of sin in our heart and life and we approach Him on that ground. He'll make it clear to us. yeah still a and need to in a little right yeah um, sometimes our, particularly in the as a christian and, and understanding that the world is constantly looking at us and the people that we work around and so forth who aren't christians uh, whether they realize it or not they're they're looking for reasons if you will to debunk You know, our faith. And we don't want to give them that. We don't want to do that. We do, as Christ did, we we do want to turn the other cheek. We want to respond with grace. It's amazing what grace will do, especially when it's undeserved, right? Because that's what grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve. You're right. You're right in that regard. Peter comments on it as well, 1 Peter. Chapter four, verse twelve. He begins talking about, "Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you." Now, of course, in in this time, this was right at the onset of that couple of hundred years of history there, where the church was under immense trial, and they're just getting into this. I say it might have been a little before, maybe right after Rome burned, right in that that time when you know that. Uh, was uh, intentionally but mistakenly, I guess you could say, uh, attributed to Christians. You know, the burning of Rome. And he says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. And that word happened means by chance in the original language. That's, we're back to that. This is not something that God doesn't know about. Alright? It might even be something that's intended but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Is that our goal? To be found faithful and obedient unto Him. And that means faithful in times of difficulty. Faithful in times of trial. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, He says, blessed are you, for the Spirit and the glory of God rest upon you. And then bounce on up to verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We cannot escape it. We can't escape it. We are to expect it from these verses. We are to expect it. It's going to happen. We're to rejoice in it, we're to evaluate it, we're to look at its cause. And do a little, you know, kick back and do a little self examination. First of all, am I a part of this? Have I been neglectful? Have I been lazy? Have I been negligent? Have I been unaware? Have I been focusing more on worldly things and the things of God? How did this happen? And when you get to that, that's the beginning of the learning process for us. Then what is my role in this circumstance, this situation? What am I to do that I might bring honor and glory to God? And then lastly, just simply entrust it to the Lord. He will not leave. He will not forsake. But We don't want to believe or get in any kind of situation where falling to sin is a possibility. And it's okay to want to avoid that. But times of testing will come. We talked about Christ's example. I mean, Christ prayed Himself in His humanity. He said, Father, if it's possible, right, in the garden, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet what? Not my will, but Your will be done. It says a lot when we can ask ourselves the question, just what am I willing to endure for Christ's sake? And Paul encouraged his readers a couple of times. You've not yet resisted unto blood. You've got the example of Christ who's gone before you, and yet you can't bear up under this issue or whatever. Christ is our example in suffering. Are we willing to follow Him? Are we willing to go there? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Can we honestly say that I'd just really rather be in the center, and in the presence of God's perfect will than anywhere else. I don't have to see, I don't have to know, I don't have to have every question answered. God will do that in His own good time because that's He wants us to know. He wants to increase us in that regard. But am I willing to be at a point where there's nothing required of me except faith in the finished work of Christ and His promises? And if we're willing to go there, then we can say, well, my my faith is growing. That is, if we've gotten through on the other side. My faith is growing because I've been there. And then the news would be, but you're not through, okay? You're not through. There's more. But He brings strength. Regardless, He brings strength. that, That experience of His grace in our life. That experience of faith. Encourages us. It's Christ in us, as Paul. That is our hope of glory. So if we identify with that, we're doing as good as we can do. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but what? But also to suffer for His sake. It's been granted to us as a privilege, it's been allowed. It's been determined. In verse 30, he has verse 29. In verse 30, he says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. This is how we identify. We get in the game, alright, if you will. We get in there and we take our part. And that, that part may be some level of endurance in somewhere way or another. It may be a, a significant amount of prayer. And I mean, I mean deep prayer. You know what I'm talking about? the thick rug kind of prayer, right? Because that's where we get closer to Him and that's where we hear His voice most clearly because what what precedes that prayer? What's first? We bring ourselves before Him. We confess our sins. We ask for His light in our life that we might see those things which we can't see right then. And then we move on. We move on. Yeah. And I would say it really involves uh worship. Because if you think about um first of all you were talking in first Peter, but in uh verse nineteen Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right, and pointing them back to you need to trust the Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's really when we're in the midst of a trial, we start focusing on us in the trial, when really we need to be focusing on the Lord and worshiping him, and we won't we won't care so much. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah, and you see that with Job particularly, you see that evidence, that stair step there. He says at the end what it was about chapter forty or forty when he says, you know, I, I knew of you before, okay? Let me paraphrase. He talks about his experience before Convinced, God declared, "This is a man who hates evil." Okay, but he says now, and he's saying because of my experience, I, I see you in a, a greater way, a deeper way, a more clear way. And he evaluated himself and he said, I, I, "Basically, I, I've been I've been unfaithful. You know, I've been unbelieving." God took me to a point where He required more of me in my faith, and it took this experience to get me there. And you're right. And we're no, we're no different. Isn't it interesting that we can look at that and say, "Yeah, that's that's it. That's that's true. That was true then. It's true now." Wouldn't that say something about the validity, the veracity of God's holy word? Acts chapter five. And this is where you, in chapter five, there, the first part of chapter five, you have got the apostles preaching, and then there's. They're on trial, you know, been on trial two or three times. Verse 28, it says there, you don't have to go to Acts 5, but I'll just give it to you. So they tell him you're not to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And then Gamaliel gets up and makes his address and makes his a, a plea. Look, just just listen to reason here. Let these people alone. If they're of God, it'll be evident. If they're not, they'll pass away just like all the others who came, saying that they were this, that, or the other. Let them alone and see what becomes of it, basically is what he's saying. So in Acts 5, beginning with verse 40, you get this. And they agreed with Him, talking about Gamaliel, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And that is a good example right there of what we've already been talking about. Praying trusting, 42, and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They just had a greater resolve. <laughs> they just continued on. They continued on. Understanding that they were there for a purpose and they had were able to bear up under the, the testing. Of course, Paul concludes in Philippians 3.10, He talks about the desire of his heart. This has always been one of my favorite verses in Scripture when he's talking about his relationship to Christ. He simply says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And what? The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That was his desire to be a partaker of. As we might say today, to be a player, a spiritual player. To be in the game and to identify with the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and to be faithful in that. 2 Timothy 4.7 adds, I have fought the good fight. Definite article in the original language. The good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Not a faith or faith. But the right one, a particular one, he was faithful to that. Listen to what John Calvin wrote so long ago. He says here, and he's talking about actually the verse 13, he says, here we must carefully note that it is not in our power to engage that great warrior, the devil, in combat or to bear his force and onslaught. Otherwise, it would be pointless or a mockery to ask of God what we already have within ourselves. Obviously, those who prepare for such a combat with self-assurance do not sufficiently understand with what a ferocious and well-equipped enemy they have to deal. Sounds like he knows what he's talking about. He continues, Now we seek to be freed from His power. as from the jaws of a mad and Raging lion. He's taken His examples from Peter, is He not? If the Lord did not snatch us from the midst of death, we could not help being immediately torn to pieces by His fangs and claws and swallowed down His throat. Yet we know that if the Lord be with us and fight for us while we keep still, in His might we shall do mightily. The only way we can persevere, the only way we can come through as Calvin understood, is simply trusting in what God has promised, and He never ever fails. He refers to Psalm 60 here, verse 12. Let others trust as they will in their own capacities and powers of free choice, which they seem to themselves to possess. For us, let it be enough that we stand and are strong in God's Power alone. And that's from the Institutes of Christian Religion which Calvin authored. We don't have a choice, really, as Christians. We don't have another uh, arsenal, if you will, to go to, to bear up under the strains, the difficulties, the demands, the challenges of life. We don't. And I say thank God for that. And the sooner we learn that, The sooner we're committed to that, the better off we are. We simply won't be wasting time in a situation uh, flittering around, looking at our own experiences, looking at worldly responses and so forth, and muddy the water, if you will, the spiritual waters, by not being faithful. Our, Our first response should be to look up, to ask the Lord, as it said earlier, to evaluate where we are and why and get self out of the way. And by that I mean know that you're, if you're a part of it, if it's not a sin in your life, it's not something you got to go get forgiveness for or be made right with somebody, great. But keep your heart open to the Lord, as Paul would say. Remember, he didn't acquit himself. He didn't do that, 1 Corinthians 4. He listened to the voice of the Lord after that examination and His Word. When I mention... That putting off the latter part of that verse where it says, for yours is the kingdom of heaven and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen? Well, that's not in the oldest transcripts. That that phrase is, is not there. In fact, there are words there that are used, the word power and the word glory. You won't find anywhere else, uh, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount where that's in reference to God. It's used, but in another fashion. That is just simply to say the language there doesn't even fit. There's those who go and look at it, you know, through the, through the uh, textual criticism, if it will. They would say that there's both internal and external evidence that that doesn't belong there. You can go back and look uh, perhaps in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 and 12. There's a prayer of David there, and it includes that kind of language. So that might be where it came from. But just know it's, depending on what translation you have, it's probably in brackets or, or something there. So I'm not going to deal with that anymore. It's a true statement. It's a very true statement. It's an appropriate statement. Somebody at some point thought it was really appropriate, <laughs> so they put it in there. You know, it's kind of like in the Mark. You know, but in the oldest transcripts, it's not. It's not in the Gospel of Mark. So let's just leave that there, and maybe we can finish up with uh, ten minutes to to look at verses 14 and 15 in here. And that should be enough time because what's literally happening here is that Christ is going back a bit. He's he's resurrecting something, (laughs) good word, uh, regarding what he wants to say about forgiveness here. Because he adds this, and he's already dealt with this, but he says, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So he's talking again about something, as all these petitions have, all six of them, uh, something that has transpired in the heart, right, or hasn't transpired in the heart, and we look at that word again. Forgive. It's the same word that we saw in verse twelve, but we add another uh, meaning that can come can come forth, and that is to. It means to hurl away, to take something and to throw it out, to get rid of it. It's when you that forgiveness uh, is what he's talking about here. That's the that's the image that would have popped up. It means to put away or to admit to suffer something to be so. To yield it up is another way of saying it. If you forgive men for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive you. You know, I've heard it said in my past church life, always seems to emerge around some sort of building program or something. I hear this, hear this phrase, you're never more like God than when you're giving. Okay, You're never more like God than when you're giving. Well, I would break that down a little more and say you're never more like God than when you're forgiving. And you might say, well, you could be giving forgiveness. Well, yeah, but forgiving, right? That's what we're about. Why? Because we've experienced the grace of God in our life. That changes Everything. That is the true impetus behind our ability to dispense grace to others. And that is a powerful thing. A very powerful thing. That is to identify us that that kind of love. They will know us by our love. Being able to dispense that grace to others because it has been dispensed to us and we know full well that we were not worthy. We were not. And yet, that's been our experience. So here, looking at the passage particularly, both these verses, they just continue the message from verses 12 and 13, which dealt with debt and forgiveness and also temptation. But you have to ask yourself, well, why? None of the other six petitions even include that. He doesn't go back and do any kind of commentary. Christ doesn't in teaching on any of those others. But He does here. So what have we already learned from that? This is just like one of those truly, truly, verily, verily things that we say in Scripture. It's important. He wants us to know. He wanted His audience right there to know. The Holy Spirit wants us to know today that our ability to forgive is reflective of where we are with Christ. More specifically, where we have been with Him. That is very important. So we have this positive, Affirmation here for every believer to forgive. Very important for us. We can go and look at Matthew 18. I think I'll do this. Yeah, I got it. Mark uh, verse 23. Because Christ later, you know, in Matthew here, there goes my machine. Ah, there we go. He's later over in at the end of chapter 18. He's going to give a specific example. Right? You know it. The wicked slave. Over in Matthew 18, beginning with verse 23. He's going to resurrect it again. So we're in chapter 6. We'll get back to this when we get to chapter 18. And we'll visit it again. Listen. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii a much smaller, like three months' wages, and you do understand that a that a talent, the amount that he gave there is just astronomical. I wrote it down. It's uh, it'd be like you know, it'd take him a hundred and fifty thousand years to pay it off if he was an average worker. <laughs> it's an infinitesimal, you know, a, a, a ridiculous amount. It Says that he seized him and began to choke him, saying, "Pay back what you owe." So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Really? You can repay all that? But he was unwilling... Oh, I'm sorry. I made a comment about the wrong one there. Yeah, he wanted to pay him back. But he was unwilling and went and threw, in prison, threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. And so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. Really? And came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? You know what we're talking about? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should pay and repay all that was owed him. Christ says in verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother. How? What are we talking about? From your heart. From your heart. So he goes back again in his teaching and he brings this up. There's no way around it. The grace of God experienced in our life changes us. And it gives us that capacity, that strength to display, to dispense, if you will, forgiveness from us. And it means, just as we've said and tried to define it so many ways, to put it away, to throw it away, to not carry it around, to not walk around hurt all the time. Because people can be hurt at us because we need grace as well. We've experienced it. We will need it again. We continue to experience that. We have the blessed privilege of just forgiving one another. It doesn't mean that we bypass gross sin. We don't call that into question. It's not about that. And, and, and I might say as well, you can go back to the first part of Matthew 18 and get a clearness on that, can't you? We understand sin has to be dealt with. That is a loving thing to do. The most loving thing. We understand that. Let me finish with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Just looking at what God has done for us. Looking at mercy and grace and this issue of forgiveness. Forgiving others. And knowing that our Heavenly Father expects that of us. Ephesians 1.7 would say, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. How? Why? According to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. That's where we rest as believers. That's what we have to pass on to others. And then lastly in James 2, verse 13, a reminder that judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. James in his wisdom adds here through the Holy Spirit, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God has been good to us in His mercy and in His grace. He's dispensed to us more than we can fathom. Because our experiences in life as we grow closer to Him, and I trust we are doing as Peter said, we're growing in the grace of God. We're growing up in the Word. And we begin to see how exceedingly sinful sin is. Just exactly what it costs. We begin to see, even looking back in our lives, the continual, if you will, uh, outcome of our sinful past sometimes. Not that it's not forgiven, but we're reminded, and I'm glad we are, that we're to stay away from it. We're to stay away from it. Let's pray together.